Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Before we begin today's interview, it's time for our five-minute segment where we have a quick check-in with some of our favorite writers. And now, five minutes with Jeremy Smith. All right. Jeremy, talk to me. How's your week? How's things going? Things are good. We're uh, right in the thick of season four of uh, Van Helsing. I mean, last time I was on your podcast, I couldn't uh, give you any news on it. But it, in the meantime, we've gotten picked up. And we're, Congrats. Uh, and we're right in the middle of our season. So we're prepping, shooting, posting, the whole the whole gamut. It's a, it's a very busy time, but it's great. Wouldn't trade it. And how many, when you say shooting, you're shooting one episode, multiple episodes? Oh, we shoot in blocks. We shoot right. two episodes at a time and uh, often out of order. So, for instance, the uh, we're prepping episode 8 and episode 10, and episode 9 is going to get shot afterwards. So it's very uh, it's a very nonlinear shooting style, um, more so than the normal series. But, so it keeps everyone on their toes, us writers trying to keep the storylines and continuity straight to the actors trying to figure out, you know, where they are in episode 10, even though they haven't even done episode 9 yet. You know, that whole uh, that whole range of where their character's at. And uh, all the departments, you know, they all have to, you know, be establishing stuff on characters that hasn't quite even happened yet, on uh, that we haven't shot yet. So it's, it's, it's a lot of work for everybody, but, you know, they're all so great. And um, it kind of, if you're a bit of a masochist, you kind of love the <laughs> And as far as where you're spending your time, are you mostly in the writer's room? Or are you going to sets? Like, walk us through that, like, balance of... Where you're at. All over the place. Yeah, we are still breaking story on that. We're almost done the back half of our season. Um, we're writing scripts right now. Um, Matt and I, my writing partner, we're the set supervisors. So while we're shooting and prepping, like we will leapfrog each other. So right now I'm prepping this block while Matt is on set supervising the shoot of the current shooting block. And then when I go to set to shoot the block that I'm just prepping now, Matt will then go back into prep mode for the next block. So we just kind of keep leapfrogging each other throughout the season. Yeah, so you kind of have to share duty between uh, either supervising set, prepping, and also delivering your scripts and breaking story with the rest of the team. So, you know, you're there's times that you wish you could clone yourself and be in more places than one, but uh, it's nowhere near the uh, multiple location demand of our All showrunner, right. John Walker. He has to, his, his schedule is even crazier, so. What's the biggest challenge for you right now? Like when you wake up, you're like, oh man, I really got to take care of this. It's always budget, budget and time. Um, With TV shows, uh, particularly, they have a far more rapid uh, schedule um, and a tighter time frame. And uh, you, you know, as your season progresses, you've spent so much money on this thing. The money people try and do it right and amortize it out. But, you know, some episodes cost more than others. So if you shot an episode that was a bigger episode, had more stunts, had more vampires, had more, you know, what have you, you then kind of have to like look for moments story-wise down the road to make them leaner um, just so you can afford the season and not blow your budget. And uh, yeah, that's the constant battle. So we recently talked to uh, Alan Dean Foster, who is the writer of Splinter of the Mind's Eye and many Star Wars novelizations. We asked him to come up with a question to ask guests. And his question was, so there are many comfort foods that uh, have been known to help when people are stressed or when they're working. Is there a comfort food that you go to when you're in the in the midst of everything? Potato chips, for sure. Potato chips. Yeah, yeah. the rest of the writing room would attest when uh, we have our own little um, snack station in our writing room. And uh, any time a bag of chips gets opened by me, it's, uh, it's definitely going to be finished. No such thing as a half bag of chips to me. This is the first true trade secret we've we've uncovered on this podcast. The chips, <laughs> the potato chips are, are the secret. So tell us what's coming up for the next week and what's on your mind and kind of like, how are you going to get there? Well, we got a lot of things going on between um, Van Helsing and uh, several things we have in development right now. Um, it's just sort of keeping those plates spinning and, and trying to trying to juggle your free time in order to, you know, still have a life, keep working on future projects, and also make sure you're putting in the love and attention that, that the show that Van Helsing deserves. So my week is um, prepping up 
for this next block, um, working closely with the director, because as when our prep finishes at the end of um, the middle of December, no, April 17th is our last day of prep, then unfortunately the company breaks for a week and a half on a hiatus. So, and then we come back and shoot it. So it's, there's going to be, it's a little bit of a heavier prep. So there's a lot of work to be done this week. I, I don't imagine um, I'm going to get a lot of personal time, but you know, the wife and I are going off to Mexico for our hiatus. So we're kind of also clock watching that 13 more days. <laughs> well, congrats, man. We'll count down for you. Thank you for checking in with us. We hope to, you know, keep this up maybe every few weeks, check in, see how you're doing, see how production's going. Yeah, man. Anytime. That was All great right, talking cool. to you. Of course. And I uh, hope you get that personal time, maybe some potato chips. <laughs> oh, there's definitely potato <laughs> chips in the future. Amazing. All right, man. And now back to the show. All right. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Tim Woods. Tim is a professional game master who was recently featured in Wired. He's also a writer, teacher, bard, and storyteller. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, so happy to be here. Absolutely. So tell us, uh, you know, I always ask first, uh, where are you in the world right now, Tim? Uh, right now, I'm in Brooklyn. I, I run my games primarily out of New York and kind of go to the tri-state area, but I live in Brooklyn, and that's where I am right now. Interesting. I actually did not know that you were in the New York area. <laughs> Absolutely, cool yeah. to talk to uh, other locals. Great city to be a writer, yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. A lot of writers here. So I just described who you are in the bio, but my descriptions, they never do enough justice. So would you mind telling us in your own words who you are, what you do, uh, and maybe what you're working on right now as far as being a game master? Totally. Well, I'll say that I am a professional game master, as you said. I run games for both young students as uh, part of after-school programs. And so I always tell people, first and foremost, I'm a teacher. If people ask me, depending on the situation, what my job is, my job is professional dungeon master, professional game master, but I am also primarily and first and foremost a teacher. And so whether I'm working with younger students as part of an after-school program or class or a weekend game or birthday party or anything like that, or whether it's with a group of adults who are just, you know, a group of coworkers, a group of friends, again, birthday parties, bachelor parties, any kind of events like that, or just your regular pickup week game. I run games for all kinds of different people, and I view it primarily as I'm teaching the game to people, especially to people who are totally new to the game. That's kind of my specialty. I bring the game primarily, mostly to people who have never gotten to play Dungeons and Dragons or other RPGs before, and that's where I kind of come in teach the game, run it for people of all different ages and backgrounds and experience levels when it comes to the game. This is perfect because we want you to basically teach the game to us on the show. Totally. Maybe not literally, but definitely the process of how you write the game. Are you ready real quick to be doing our series of seemingly random questions at the beginning of the show? I am so excited to be part of this. I okay. can't wait. Here we yeah. go. So normally we save these to the end and I right. uh, just want to test it out and see what happens. The first one oh. is... If you could take any fantasy character from any book, movies, role-playing games, your own characters, to any fast food restaurant, which uh, character would you choose? Which restaurant and why? Ooh, ooh, okay. Fast food restaurant. My inclination is I, I want to swing by for some Popeye's chicken. That's what ooh, I want to do. And smart. I want to do it with i mean as soon as you said fantasy character i can't not picture gandalf in some kind of a fast food <laughs> situation kind of complaining kind of being like what's this chicken oh i don't know if i approve this isn't how we do things so uh either that or or straight up golem depending on what i'm going right, for if i'm right. trying to have a nice time gandalf if i'm trying to mess with some people maybe bring golem with me and uh have him just Pretty much, I imagine you break into the kitchen and just start eating chicken and you get chased around. And that would definitely be entertaining for me. Absolutely. Um, and I guess if I'm just trying to have a normal time, one of the hobbits then in that case. So I've got, I've got all my different uh, moments covered in terms of what I'm doing at the fast food restaurant. And for the record, Gandalf would arrive to Popeye's precisely when he means to. <laughs> when um, he means to, exactly. <laughs> it's not necessarily when the chicken's ready, but it'll be ready. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So second question, and I'm actually really curious to hear the answer to this. What's the strangest thing any player has ever done while you're game mastering a game? Oh, 
strangest thing just caught you off guard you're like wow didn't see that coming the strangest thing um i mean you say caught me off guard and i can definitely think the most surprised i ever was wasn't because of something necessarily a character did it was something a young student said i was running a kid's game but I was playing, I was running the game for both the uh, adults, the parents, and the kids. So it was parents playing alongside, like, the next generation, basically, all as one big party. And uh, the youngest kid in the group just kept rolling critical hits on persuasion checks to get various monsters to be his friends. It was driving <laughs> all the adults nuts because they would strategically, like, ready their actions and move into position to do sneak attacks and do all this stuff. Then he'd show up and say, I say hello. And I'm like, okay, roll persuasion. He crit, 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 nonstop, critting all the time. The adults were losing their minds. Our we were, jaws were on the table. And after getting three different monsters to basically surrender and become his best friend, uh, he met a ghost. He crits talking to the ghost. And I have the ghost say, uh, are you the wizard who I serve? And the kid goes, no. And all the adults go, no, wait, wait. Right. And it wasn't one of the adults, but one of the older kids who from across the table just goes, if somebody asks if you're a wizard, you say yes. <laughs> and I froze and I said, did you just quote Ghostbusters at me? Because this was approximately maybe a 10 year old kid who said this at the time. And I lost my mind. I gave inspiration. I was like, I'm sorry. I expect a Ghostbusters quote and I expect silliness, but I just don't expect a Ghostbusters quote from someone one third of my age. And yeah. that, was, that really struck me off my feet. It made me very happy. Like, I'm waiting for the Monty Python quotes next. Like, they're, this student was not just good at D&D. &D, they were good at quoting the right things in the D&D game. And I think that's its own skill set. So That kid is going places. Absolutely. Going places, Absolutely. exactly, yeah. All right. So next question is role-playing and parentheses here. Fandom in general, which includes comic books and everything. <clears throat> is it too cool now? It, you know, 20 years ago... Playing role-playing games maybe wasn't as cool. Maybe comic books weren't as cool. Now they are. Is it too cool or does it matter? I would, oh, sorry, what was the, the follow-up? I got a lot of thoughts on <laughs> The follow-up is basically, you know, in 20 years, it's definitely become more mainstream. Is it, from your perspective, was it a little bit more sexy, so to speak, when it wasn't as cool? Or does the cool factor, is that just, like, does it not matter? I'll say this. So I definitely think all of this stuff is getting way, way cooler. I don't think there is such a thing as too cool. I, in fact, think cool is probably just a relative product. It's a result of how people feel about it anyway. So the fact that it's becoming more popular is only a good thing in my mind. I, I remember it. being a young student. First of all, I want to say this. D&D &D over the next 10 years will continue to grow, I believe, so exponentially that there is no way that in 10 years D&D &D will be something that I personally, Tim Woods, professional game master, <laughs> can recognize. It will become something so unrecognizable to me that I know there will be parts of D&D &D that I just won't like because I didn't grow up with it because it wasn't like, oh, this is D&D &D now and I'm going to be skeptical and I'm going to be kind of an old man. <laughs> but guess what? I can still play the D&D &D I know and love. No one has the power to take that away from anybody. So, I Dare I make the, the analogy of, you know, the original trilogy of Star Wars films uh -huh. and uh, where it's become, you know, are you going to be that like cranky old that used to be like this? I would never touch that with a 10 <laughs> but I, I will say that I'm going to hopefully be the kind of old man who recognizes that it was going to change inevitably and that it is a result of it becoming so widespread, it inevitably will become something that I'm going to go around saying that's not D&D, &D, and statistically, I'm wrong. Statistically speaking, <laughs> I am not correct. That is what D&D &D is, just because it's not what I grew up with does not invalidate that. So D&D is going to change. D&D is going to become, I believe, much more popular, and many people will get much more upset about this before all is said and done and the dust has settled. I believe D&D can never get too cool. And the reason I feel that way is because I remember growing up and not feeling like, oh, it's sexy and cool that I do this thing that people don't understand. That is not how I felt growing up. I felt growing up that I was a weirdo. I felt that there was something vaguely evil about it because we were still recovering from the satanic panic and uh, going through the, the healing process together, as it were. And uh, 
I definitely was worried I was doing something wrong, something weird, something quote-unquote antisocial, something that was not by any means going to help me later in life, if anything was going to alienate me. And I didn't feel a lot of good things about myself as a D&D player. I would love to see that change. That's very important to me that that change. And part of that is that becoming more popular to the point where when I was growing up, I would tell people about D&D, and they barely know about video games at the time. So now it's almost just hard to make fun of people for playing D&D when we're so immersed in gaming culture. So I only want to see D&D become totally more mainstream than probably most people want it to be. And to my mind, it's uh, there's no reason why D&D and RPGs in general aren't as big as film, TV, these entertainment mediums by themselves are huge. And there's no reason RPGs, let alone gaming uh, in general, should not be much, much bigger. And I think that is the future that we're heading towards, which makes me very excited about D&D and its popularity. Sounds like a beautiful world. Um, <laughs> so... Last question. What is something people get wrong about game mastering or role-playing games in general? Oh, man. I mean, uh, I'm very hesitant to tell people to say anything about like, oh, uh, people are doing this wrong, people are doing that wrong. The thing is, if it works for your group, then you're doing it right. Um, I guess, yeah. And what I will say is the thing that people get wrong is that there is a right way to play. Uh, People make a big mistake about that. Personally, the most fascinating things about RPGs to me are the idea that it's so relative. It's so just up to your opinion of it that I don't see any evidence. So if we accept that the rule is the DM is always right and the DM can overrule literally anything in this entire rule book, everything in here is conditional to this one person saying yes or no, then I don't see any evidence that you can't walk up to somebody and say, this hand sandwich I'm handing you? is called Dungeons and Dragons. And this is what Dungeons and Dragons is, is this ham sandwich with Swiss. (laughs) And someone can say, I don't like that D&D game. But I don't actually, if you can say that that's not D&D, anything can be D&D because it's all up to the relative opinions of literally one person at the table. That's a lot of power. And that power comes with a lot of, of course, responsibility. Your players will walk away from you if you hand them a ham sandwich and tell them it's D&D. Of course, we know that. But At the same time, that's something that people get wrong is the idea that there is an implicit agreement that some things are D&D and some things are not. You can play D&D without dice, and it's still just as much D&D as anything else. And that means that there's a terrifying amount of leeway that everybody has. It's almost too much leeway, but that's what the game brings to the table that other games don't. Uh, And that's something that I think when we have conversations about D&D, it's very frustrating because when people say, well, just we can all agree that this is real. It's like, no, we can't agree on anything. We literally can't agree on anything unless we agree on certain parameters, which you know, in Internet conversations, nobody's agreed upon those. So it, it can be very frustrating to have what are called, quote unquote, objective conversations about the game that in everyone's hands becomes something entirely different. Have you ever had a ham sandwich while you were playing D&D? Uh, I'm trying to desperately think now, and I, Bonus I'm question. sure at some point, at some point, <laughs> it must have happened. Love it. All right. So, uh, we're done with those questions. Thank you. Um, I had a lot of fun and I think we're warmed up to actually talk process. Um, so as we mentioned, uh, usually we frame our episodes around specific themes. In this case, would you be down to school us on the process of writing from a game master's perspective? Absolutely. So what's interesting is I've had a lot of people are surprised by this uh, sometimes is that very often I get requests not to necessarily run my own homebrew games. Very often players come to me with the idea of, I want you to run, okay, the adventure Storm King's Thunder just came out. Could you run Storm King's Thunder for me and my friends? So they'll have a request or they will specifically request, you know, do a homebrew and then I have things prepared. Very often for one-shot games, which are a decent amount of what I do, Uh, I have kind of canned, prepared games that I know, okay, in the three-hour span, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to have a big battle, and like I know that this pre-written adventure delivers uh, in one session on what people want out of D&D. So very often, the writing process for me isn't so much creating something from scratch as it is looking at something that is a pre-written adventure 
and then figuring out how am I going to modify, improvise, add on to, expand upon, deepen the kind of lore that I've been given. I love to write this way because to me, it's like getting the best kind, the most in-depth prompts, and then figuring out what can I riff off of there. To me, it's so um, juicier than, let's say, me sitting down and saying like, well, I want to create something from scratch. And I don't have a big danger when you're creating from scratch is that very often you'll write an amazing plot and then players will be like, well, why don't I just do this? And it's something that completely goes around your plot. You're like, fuck, how do I fill this plot hole real quick before my whole game falls apart? And it's a bummer because you're like, this wasn't even the important part. Now my story seems dumb, but in reality, it'll be cool if you just focus on the parts I was thinking of. But you're talking about a story that is inherently approachable from not the reader's angle, but from any angle that the the gamer wants to choose. They can hack your game. They can do the classic, I mean, video game designers always run into the problem of you design a room and then all of a sudden the first thing gamers do is, I want to go to the part you didn't expect me to go to. That's what I want to do, is the part that you probably didn't program in yet because you didn't think I would go here. And I know that's where the goodies are, so uh, it's a different philosophy of design you have to be much more open-ended, I would say. I'm, I'm never writing a story. I'm writing many possible stories when I design an adventure. You almost answered all of my questions in, <laughs> one, in one statement there. No, just kidding. Um, taking one step back, uh, just to just kick this off, can you, for those who don't know, because I'm sure those who, who sure, are listening sure. who haven't played role-playing games before, can you define what a game master is? And is a sure. game master limited to a specific like Dungeons and Dragons. I know for the fact that that's not the case, but do you mind just elaborating on that? Absolutely. So I identify as a game master because the role in Dungeons and Dragons is called the dungeon master, but in other games, they might name the role a different role. So game master kind of catches all different RPGs like Dungeons and Dragons, Call of Cthulhu, uh, Paranoia, a variety of different games will fall under that heading. But each time the game master is called maybe something different. Role-playing games are kind of a genre of games that are defined by the idea that sometimes, not always, there is a storyteller who's the game master, and then there is also players who are controlling a variety of characters. In Dungeons & Dragons, it's your traditional fantasy characters like an elven wizard, a dwarven fighter, something like that. And you make, as a player, decisions on behalf of those characters while also trying to imagine how your character would react to the circumstances being told by the storyteller. You try to immerse yourself in the character, make decisions as them, and then re-roll the dice to see whether you succeed or fail at the uh, things that you're attempting to do. So if you roll high, you might hit the monster. If you roll low, the storyteller will describe how you failed at whatever you're attempting to do. And then the storyteller will give you information like, okay, there's a hallway, there are doors, there's a skeleton over here, there's some writing, but you can't read it yet, and present kind of the mysterious circumstances surrounding you. And then you as a player imagine what your character would do, how they would react, how they would uh, navigate whatever situation that they're put into by the storyteller. And then as a game master, there's also, you know, the game itself. And then there's like different uh, scopes, right? There's like a Mm one-off session. There's an adventure, a campaign. Can you explain to us the difference of those and also the difference like in the challenges of writing for those? Absolutely. In theory, you play a game like an RPG or Dungeons & Dragons across multiple sessions. Mine go usually about three hours, which is about average. Some people say it's on the shorter side, but a three-hour game you can is usually just enough time to get a lot done. And in theory, if it's a one-shot, you're all just playing, you know, grabbing some characters, playing for three hours, and then the story's over. But more often than not, people play campaigns of Dungeons & Dragons where they continually return to the same group of characters wherever we left them last session. Very often this happens on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. We'll continue the same story and go through multiple adventures, kind of like a, an epic overarching story, like in Lord of the Rings or something like that. So I currently have a group of younger students who have been playing with me on Saturdays. They've been playing with me for, I want to say, close to five years now, and they have gone with the same group of characters all the way from level one up to level 12, just playing the same series of adventures, getting to know their characters better, but getting to also know the people in the town that they're defending. They're starting to find out more about the mysteries of the politics happening in the city. 
they're discovering that some of the things they were doing when they were level two and three still are having consequences in the city. They're rippling politics and uh, a cause and effect that, you know, they're caught up in is something that we've been, you know, we've been telling the story for a long time now, and it's grown very organically, um, which is, I'd say, probably my favorite thing about a good D&D campaign is you never know how it's going to end because each session people are throwing in new things that change the story and deepen it and campaigns and long running campaigns, especially are one of my favorite, you know, groups of relationships that you can have in a D&D game. So tell us about character arcs. How do they play into the storytelling? Absolutely. So what's funny is uh, that is the thing I really have to contend with was the, is the idea of I can imagine, oh, I really want this character to like achieve victory in this particular way so that it fits in with the theme of their redemption story. But not only can I not predict what they'll do or necessarily always like what you know the monsters and stuff are going to do, in theory, I have more control over that. I certainly can control what the dice rolls are going to be. And to me, that is the coolest thing is very often. I still get these incredible stories coming out of my game, not because I designed it that way, but because the right dice roll at the right moment will all of a sudden make the story go in this amazing direction. And then very often it'll be something where one player or myself will go, oh my God. And of course, as they're dying, they say this, and it's the perfect way for that character to die or something like that. And in really the organic storytelling is so satisfying because everyone knows we didn't mean for it to necessarily happen this way, but it did. And now it's like, you know, the story told itself as it were. So that goes for like funny situations where it's like, oh, Tim, that session was so funny. Good job. And in my head, I'm like, I didn't make that session funny. (laughs) It's because you rolled a one right when you were trying to jump onto this guy's back and everybody fell over into a big pile. And it was hilarious. (laughs) Or we had an instance where one character died at this particular moment. And I'm like, in my head, I'm like, yeah, okay, I you know, hope this happens in a fun way, but it didn't seem like the right time for that character to die. And instead, it became this whole thing where the cleric had, like, no spell slots to resurrect them. But then we leveled up, and so it's like, wait, but I do have a spell slot. If we level up, that means I just got a new spell slot. And I'm like, the spell only lasts if you get to them in 10 rounds. How many rounds has it been? We realized it was three rounds left to go, and so that tension emerged out of random dice rolls not because i wrote that like okay you've got 18 seconds left are you gonna make it in time oh the town guard's mad at you are we gonna like and so literally it came down to such a fine line because of random dice results as opposed to me writing the perfect amount of time for them to essentially like as the clock hit zero that's when uh you know the situation finally got resolved and the person got resurrected and that character then, or the player, I should say, then said, when my character died, he died, then got resurrected just in the nick of time, but his soul was, like, slightly eroded, and when he came back, his hair changed color. The player got a new miniature for him that was, like, a darker version of the old, and he'd been, like, this cheery hobbit, and so he was becoming gradually more and more, like, dark version of the old character. So he was becoming edgier and more, like, gothy, and it was this great way for the character to kind of go down a darker path. Uh, and show because we'd all be, always been expecting that this cheery hobbit who is a blood hunter obviously was going to as they level up start to show more of their badass nature and this was a perfect way to then enable that change to happen in a way that i hadn't necessarily intended so that's an example of how i find i'm working with a medium that all writers should get some exposure to because of how much it breaks me out of my ruts i'd be like oh yeah and then the character's like turning more dark and um, I'll add this so that it shows how the character's getting darker. And instead, I don't add anything. I just let the story tell itself. And generally, it does a better job of it than I ever could. If you had to assign a percentage as far as the control that each of these has on the story or the campaign or the adventure itself, player, game master, and fate, the chance of the dice, what would you say? Would you say 33, 33, 33? Or... <sighs> I'd like to because I want to say that a good game master and part of what I try to do is really let the dice tell the story. And in a weird way, I look at a D20 now and I can almost intuit the difference between, say, what does it look like? The difference between a 17 and a a 15 on the dice. Okay, a 15 looks like this. uh, A 17, I'll give you that in a backflip. And like, you know, (laughs) I've been doing this so long, I know what level of success I designate to these numbers very intuitively. 
And so very quickly, I can like say, okay, so it's going to depend on the dice. And then when I see the dice roll, it's like instant boom. All of a sudden I see what's happening. And I like to think that that means that me as a game master, I'm much more guided by fate and by the players. Otherwise would be. I think that a new game master, it's natural to want to have more control. Letting go of control is not an easy thing to do. And so I hesitate to be like, well, of course, the game master should be happy to let go of control. When you're first starting out, that's not an easy thing to do. You really need to be confident in what you're doing. Otherwise, I very often see newer dungeon masters just being like, no, you can't do that right now. And very often that's the right move rather than let the players just go hog wild and overwhelm you. And then you're like, "Okay, I need to take a break. This is too much for me right now. And the message is also as players be attentive to the experience level of your DM and, and work with them, not against them. But um, I think that the the percentage, I think for a newer game master, is going to be much closer to 50% the GM, and then maybe 33% the players, and then less on fate. That's what I see is a game masters with less experience are going to generally just be like, I kind of want this to happen, so I'm not less interested in what you rolled, whereas I'm really leaving it up to the dice and uh, very much saying, like, listen, you, you failed. Um, somebody else try now. Like, and kind of hoping the successes and failures guide the story into an interesting place. Very often the game is designed to do so, and so the less control I try to seize, the more the players feel their control over it, and the more it seems like fate is going to swing things one way or another in an interesting way. So I definitely try to err on one-third, 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 but definitely when I was starting out, it was well into 60% me just trying to tell people what this campaign is about and what they're supposed to be doing. And now when I see younger students doing that, I have a lot of empathy and a lot of uh, ability to work with them and help them getting to the point where they are really attentive to what the players want to do as opposed to where they want the story necessarily to go. In regards to the control you do have, can you walk us through the planning process on a typical day? Like today, I think you're playing, right? Could you walk us through like the prep that you do? So it's funny, I am going to be running a game this afternoon where I'm happy to say some of the students have stepped up and they are actually, I'm essentially co-DMing. And Ah. so, I mean, for me, it's nice because in theory, I have to do less game-based prep, but I'm more, I'm doing all the boring stuff. I'm like figuring out stats. I'm like uh, crunching the numbers. I'm highlighting certain rules we might be forgetting and just letting the game master a student. Uh, kind of guide the story. But when I'm running the story, as in the case of my morning game today, I was taking a dad and his son through the beginner box. And uh, for them, it's a matter of, okay, I'll sit down. Very often, um, I'll generate the map beforehand, if possible. In this case, I didn't get to because we were really doing a dungeon exploration. And a big part of that uh, dungeon exploration was you don't know what the map is up ahead. If I can make the map ahead of time, and it doesn't matter. I'll always make the map ahead of time so I can just save time. But if it's where, you know, what's around this corner, what's around that corner, I generally have to kind of draw it on the spot or use my modular terrain. But making maps personally is one of my favorite things to do. So I spend a lot of my prep time making, you know, try to make nice looking maps, if at all possible, plan out combats and kind of make myself aware of certain details that I'm going to want to know. Essentially, I call it making myself confident with the monsters. I want to not necessarily do anything like run through the battle and simulate it beforehand. I hear people doing that. And to me, that's you're worrying too much about whether this fight is hard or easy. D&D is generally not about strictly balancing combats to be exactly this difficult. or not. It's about just throwing things in, seeing what comes out, and random dice results kind of generating that. So I... Uh, try to get familiar with the monster's power so I'm not checking rules during the game. As a professional, I, whether I know the rule or not isn't the issue. It's will I waste time looking up the rule? And in that case, if I will waste time looking up a rule, it falls in favor of the players always without a doubt. So that is how I prepare is to make myself basically save as much time as possible. What I don't worry too much about is really planning for every eventuality because, number one, we all improvise a little bit better on the spot than I think we give ourselves credit for if we just relax and let ourselves do it. And number two, I think it's underestimated just satisfaction uh, that players derive when it comes to D&D from the surprise look on the DM's face. I think too many GMs are out to like not look surprised and to hide that, when in reality, there's no better reward for a group of D&D players than saying something. And my face is, 
I, I guess you could. <laughs> I guess you could. Right. And that response gets so many laughs, and no one's been like, why didn't you prepare for us to do this? Right. They only feel pride that they thought of something that I didn't. So it's it's generally not uh, worth my time to try to think of everything that every D&D player is going to do, when in reality they get more satisfaction out of surprising me. And in reality, I think my whole approach is very much thinking as a DM and not as a player. And I think my players, in general, that serves my GMing because I'll be like, oh, yeah, you guys can just do this. And they're like, yeah, we got them. And I'm like, well, I wouldn't have been thinking as an adventure. I think it's a little bit of a stretch when players are like, well, the goblins are worried about parties of four who have a wizard, a rogue, and a fire. It's like, okay, yeah, this can happen in the world, but um, I like to give D&D parties the benefit of the doubt that they are, you know, breaking in on a situation that maybe they've got the, the jump on more often than not. Uh, so there's things I prep, and then there's things I try to avoid prepping. And I will say that when it comes to prep, I try not to do too much because it's easy to do too much. I've had to minimize, not maximize. I've I had to shorten the amount of time I prep as I've picked up more and more games. I've discovered that I have done in the past too much prep that have actually, uh, there is a, a point of diminishing returns. There is a point where right. you can prep so much that the game stops being fun because you've, I've overthunk battles and made them not too tough, but just like, okay, I got to throw in a million enemies in this because I know the party's just been like doing so well and then i overthink it and make a battle that's not all that fun because in reality the truth was the players were having more fun beating the shit out of my monsters and like they wanted they said they wanted to be challenged but in reality it was like no they were having a lot of fun winning actually and they were just underestimating how much fun they were having bulldozing the situations as opposed to actually being challenged so yeah hey everyone we just wanted to take a quick second to thank you, our listeners, for your continued support. The Writer Experience Podcast has been self-funded from the beginning. So whether you're an aspiring writer who has taken inspiration from the podcast, or just enjoy hearing from professional writers, please donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash writer experience. You can also go to our website, writerexperience.com, and click the Patreon button. Thank you again. We really appreciate your support. And now... Back to the show. Can you walk us through the physics of time in role-playing games and how you write for it? Because I know there's, you know, there's battles where those will be in real time. There's going through dungeon crawling, like you said, real time. But then there's also time lapse. Like you travel from point A to point B. Totally. So it's interesting because time lapses are something that I think uh, GMs generally say like, okay, totally, you, you want to fast forward to boring stuff, but there isn't necessarily a lot of agreement on what parts to skip through. And, and every DM has a different style when it comes to that. So uh, for my money, I do time lapse through plenty of different things. But one thing that I do that's a little bit different than other uh, DMs, and it's something that I think is a little bit controversial, is I almost never have my players out of initiative almost never out of initiative. If we're fast-forwarding through something, we're only fast-forwarding through it if we're doing it as a group. But if there's any chance that somebody's going to do something different, I do not allow people to go, oh, just one second. Since we're out of initiative, let me just do this, do this, do this, do this, and do this. That's how the players who kind of want to hog the table, right. that's how they do it. That's how they do it. They say, oh, no, I'm just doing one little thing because we're out of combat. And like uh, my character would be doing all this stuff with every single second of downtime that we have in between. And I'm like, okay, well, if you're going to do that, then I want to know, especially those three other players who haven't played D&D before, I want to know what the three of them are doing. Because if you're going to get to talk for the next 10 minutes, I keep people in initiative <laughs> in order to make sure that basically, whether you have played before or not, whether you're the quiet spouse off to the side who's like, what's this? Or the person who's like, I wanted you here to play some D&D. Whoever it is, we're all going to play the same amount. We're all going to get the same amount of table time. We're all going to get to talk the same amount. That's the goal, is for equal contributions. And so, therefore, I keep us in initiative so that somebody says, okay, I just do this thing real quick. And I'm like, great, that eats up your move. Now you've got your action and your bonus action. What do you do with those? And, I mean, with kids, it's very important because younger students are like, okay, I want to do this, this, and this. I want to dab on my turn. I'm like, that's your bonus action. What do you do now? And it's like, no. So they want to... Um, <laughs> 
maximize the stuff that they get to do. That's what all D&D players, adults and kids want to do is on some level, we kind of want to make the game a little bit more about us. Uh, and so that's a natural inclination. I use turns to keep people doing that. And then I'll fast forward through things if I know that we're all on the same page. But it can be really tricky because I'll run into players where I'll be like, okay, one high charisma character knows that they could negotiate with the leader of these enemies at the end of the dungeon. So they'll go to the party and say, oh, okay, everyone just agree to my plan. We'll get me to the leader and then I'll make a charisma check and I've got, you know, a really high charisma bonus. So we're, we're going to do it. We're gonna, we know we're going to succeed. I pretty much guarantee they'll succeed. But so he's just like, everyone just skip your turns. And I go, no. No one skip your turns. Everyone roll initiative and let's see if you get to the boss. And then all of a sudden when we take turns, the druid says, oh, actually, if I get a turn, yeah, I want a wild shape and scout around, actually. And the bar, the bar no, 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 wait, 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 we stick to the plan, stick to the plan. And I'm just smiling going, apparently nobody's sticking to the plan right <laughs> now. And I know many players would be frustrated with that. They say, oh, because you gave everybody a turn, that's the only reason they didn't stick to my great plan. And my plan was great because I would have fast forwarded through the whole dungeon. That's the criteria they're basing it off of is we're fast forwarding through the boring parts. But they're identifying the boring parts as the entire dungeon that they think they can skip through. So... When I know that we're going to actually not make the game more fun, we're going to actually make the game less fun, and some people want to fast-forward through certain stuff, and I'm like, let's just see what people do on their turns. Interesting. And then all of a sudden, there's a much more uh, satisfying story being generated at that point that everyone gets to contribute in, not just it's like one person playing Pandemic for everybody else, right. basically, like taking everybody's turns for them and uh, just kind of overruling everybody. An initiative-based dynamic, I find, adds a lot to the game. And then, contrary to, like, bogging us down in the boring part, actually gives everybody a chance to do interesting stuff. I'm not sure if that fully answers no, the question about fast-forwarding through stuff, but I sometimes don't agree with people on what the boring parts are and what they aren't. And very often, it's not what I think. I watch the group, and I see what are they interested in, and I say, you know, by the way, if we just do this, we can probably skip the whole part. And everyone said nods, and I go, good, good, okay. We're on the same page. They know I'm kind of giving them a hand on the story, but I'm doing it because I've read the room, as it were. Reading the room might be the most important DMing skill as it, as it happens, and I think it's something that gets severely underestimated. The ruling should never be what the rule book says. The ruling should always be, is the group having fun or is the group not having fun? That's what it should be based off of. So you're obviously writing for a lot of different personalities. They're your yes. own, so to speak. How does that vary from one game to the next? Is there one situation where, well, I'm writing for these guys and these dudes are jokesters. So I mm -hmm. have to be mm -hmm. you know, on my A game because they'll, you know, do totally. some crazy I shit. Or, you know, I'm writing for the kids now and we have to write in a different way. Absolutely. I mean, I would say for sure. The more people tell me that there's some commonalities as to how people play, the more I actually think that that is not true. I think that there are just so many different approaches people take to the game that in reality, whether I make a combat hard or easy, whether I make something funny or serious, whether I make something like dark or light, is all about the group, ultimately. I am always thinking, and that's been a tough thing because I think it is natural to just be like, oh, just design an adventure. In reality, I need to think of those players, not the characters, not the rules of the game. I need to think about those players and whether those players are going to recognize what I'm writing as the D&D &D that they want. As the, I will repeat, as the D&D &D that they want because there are so many different D&Ds, plural. It would be disingenuous to say I'm running normal D&D. There's no such thing. It doesn't exist. No one has the standard correct way to play D&D. &D. And I've had people come up to me and say, well, when you run the game, of course you always want to run it this way. And I, there's no rule that anyone's given me that holds true in all games. I just have yet to hear even one truth that uh, maybe if there is a truth, it, then it holds true in all human conversation, maybe. But like beyond that, I don't think there are commonalities. Everyone wants something different out of their game. And so I always need to think about the individuals when it comes to altering the story and modifying it. And I would say that uh, what is funny is the fact that 
the ways that adults and kids play is not all that different. That's the funniest thing to me is that there are huge differences in the way people play, but I've had to make things more mature for kids groups and I've had to make things less mature for adult groups. So I've had to turn very in-depth, like story-driven, character-driven, complex stories into dungeon crawls for adults. And then for kids, I've turned dungeon crawls into like political romances uh, that have just gone absolutely fucking off the rails for some kids who are just like, oh, I'm not just going to, I didn't come here to fight in this dungeon. I came here to change the world. And I'm just like, oh, never mind. I made a lot of assumptions that we were here to just like cast spells and fight monsters. Uh, Never mind. We're telling a much different story than I thought. And it's largely driven by them. I mean, I have students who now at five years Saturday group, I finally accepted that there is one student who just is going to enter the dungeon and try to convince every monster that they are here to help. And they're, they're taking the uh, pacifist <laughs> route, as right. it were. And so now I have to, to plan things a little bit differently. And every now and then I will still like design the whole encounter and then show up and he'll be like, I rolled diplomacy. And I'm like, right, I totally forgot. Why did I plan for a combat at all? And I'll, I'll like have to kick myself because I got into bad habits with the, I shouldn't say bad, but I, I got into habits with other groups and then accidentally forgot that um, he was going to give instructions to his whole party, like, just wait, wait for me to talk first. And he was actually successful in enrolling everybody in his group to actually delay and wait for him to, to take the lead. But that is a group that I have to design things very different for because I have to look at each monster and say, is this a monster who will negotiate or not? If it's a golem, then okay, we're talking different tactics at that point. And you're also a writer of different mediums as well. Do you mind walking us through, A, what else you work on from a writing perspective? And then also, how did those mediums compare to writing for Dungeons and Dragons or for a game? Totally. I mean, so my origin story is really like when I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be J.R. Tolkien. I wanted to be the next big fantasy writer. And I remember two big moments, the first being in my public library when I kind of realized there's a lot of bad fantasy out there. There's a lot of books that I'm not going to read. And uh, and I kind of like, even at a young age, was like, oh, I guess I wouldn't be Tolkien. I guess I might more likely statistically be one of these people. And uh, okay. And, uh, and to be fair, I was like going in down different paths. And I was just starting to discover that some of these people who I was like, who is this? Were in fact like Robert Jordan and George R. R. Martin and like people who I then like became big fans of. And I started to understand that, you know, this was a whole genre and stuff. But I remember wanting to be a fantasy author, and the second moment that kind of changed my mind on that was realizing that after I kind of sat down and really spent a year trying to work on the craft, I remember thinking that I felt isolated, and that it was the same year I, I was teaching, and I was deriving so much more joy, not just in my life, but as I felt a storyteller from teaching than I was from sitting in front of my computer. And I have immense respect for the writer's craft, especially now when I spent a year sitting down and really trying to, for X number of hours per day, produce writing. And I really then at the end of the year struggled to say, is this what I want to do with my life? I have so much more respect for it now, but I'm also realizing that this might not have been what I thought it was going to be. Cranking out a book and then hoping people were going to like it was in some ways, uh, I guess I had become a little disillusioned, maybe, uh, and that this was going to be something, a satisfying way for me to get stories across. And I was having so much fun teaching because I got to watch people before my very eyes changing their thinking about things, growing, critically applying themselves. And teaching had been become so satisfying, I immediately, I, I was teaching abroad at the time, and I, I had to start an after-school program as part of my contract uh, teaching abroad, and I started an after-school D&D program. And that was incredible. I very quickly realized that D&D was a better tool for language learning um, and teaching in general than I had come across at that point. That RPGs, just as they exist now, are incredible teaching tools, let alone what they could become. I was seeing better results in just a D&D after-school program than I was seeing in my regular classroom. That led me to then really rethink my role 
who am, am I as a storyteller? I was starting to realize that storytelling is many things and that I was a uh, not so much intelligence, but charisma based character. And I was going to, uh, in many ways be performing more than I was maybe writing in the sense that people uh, very often apply to it. So I remember feeling like very excited about the potential of D&D. And that's when I started formulating later on in grad school. I took that result that I had seen while teaching and subsequent kind of results I had gotten teaching D&D. And I started writing my PhD in grad school on the idea that RPGs and Dungeons and Dragons specifically are these incredible tools for language learning, for communication, skill building, and that in fact, they've always been educational. We've just lost sight of that in a kind of era where we're very obsessed with the difference between play and work. And we've lost track of the fact that play and learning are in fact really, really necessary uh, components within one another, that the endeavor of learning is something that is propelled forward by play and by games, and that by kind of distinguishing the two and saying that learning is work, learning is not play, we've actually done a huge disservice to our education system. So my whole dissertation ended up being on Dungeons & Dragons and kind of how not only can this be educational, it was already educational, and only in recent history have we started to then adopt a denial of the fact that games, I argue, partially because of video games, and we probably all lived through the era of video game addiction and this really being a huge concern and uh, a generation being very scared of how mainstream video games were becoming. I think uh, gaming has actually in some ways become more mainstream, but has gotten a bad rap from maybe people getting a little too hooked onto it for very natural reasons, the same reasons we get hooked on literally everything else that we enjoy, and that we've started to look even more at play as this bad thing that is like wasting time, as opposed to an incredibly necessary thing that human brains have to do or else they don't work properly. And, and so at me as a writer, I very quickly be, kind of moved into academia as a result of teaching, but then ironically, for someone who for my whole life was obsessed with just fiction and the idea of being a nonfiction writer was just like, poo poo, get that out of here. Um, <laughs> I ended up becoming a nonfiction writer and really advocating. I wrote a chapter in, in a book a few years before my dissertation and then published my dissertation after that and uh, really wrote a whole nonfiction uh, treatise on basically trying to argue for uh, games and their fundamental importance to the learning process. My next question is two parts. Uh, the first one is that role-playing games in general are a bit fleeting, right? If you write a novel, you have a tangible uh, work to show yeah. for yourself. When you uh, play a game, per se, you don't always have that totally. of your game. You don't always have that to take away. Is there a downside to that? Or is the benefit of the gameplay more important than that? And then second part of my question is, for you as a game master, is there an end game for you? Can you build a resume? I mean, you've been on Wired. You're now on the Writer Experience <laughs> podcast. Um, you know, what's the end game? Are you? Uh, would you like to be the the greatest, most uh, renowned uh, game master out there? I mean, I, to my mind, I'm already very lucky to get to have the career that I have right now. I really count my blessings. I am doing something that I'm very passionate about, that I really love, that I do think I have gotten to not only have a talent for, but also really work on that talent and hone it running just dozens of games every week it has made me a better game master without a doubt. So I'm very, very grateful. It is a very good point that I don't have really, and it's something that I always wrestle with, is the idea that these games are such incredible stories that unless you're there for, they're like the wind, they're gone. And, right. and, we sh and in some ways that makes them incredibly precious, and it's why people will pay so much for a D&D &D session is the people who are paying for it recognize just how precious something like that is an experience that only you know maybe six people at the table get to share that's so personal so specific so intimate and i think that uh so it's something that people really really value and it's why people are, are willing to you know commit their time and invest their time and dedication to games like this and so it's why I've actually been very interested in this idea of podcasting and taping games. 
I will also say one of my players, to give credit where credit is due, has taken notes so detailed on every one of our Storm King's Thunder sessions oh, wow. that he now has. I want to give credit, but I'm afraid I'm going to underestimate how many pages worth of material he has. I think it's well over 100 pages. So he has... I don't say short novel. He's got a novel. We've got a novel. It's all very raw, which I actually really like. I was at first like, oh, if we could turn this into a finished product. But I'm also like, it would lose something if we turned it into a story from a third person perspective. It's all kind of written from the party's perspective and what they did. And uh, he really has created something. And then when one of our players had to move to California, he like printed it all out, put it in a binder and gave it to me and to that player. And it was, it's one of the most precious gifts I have is one of my longest running campaigns is in, you know, a record now, but because so much of that, you know, it can capture something, but it certainly doesn't capture the jokes, the fun, the the moments where we laughed and like, you know, all those really sentimental, intimate moments. I am very interested in the idea of podcasting, of recording games. It's been something that I've become really, really interested in doing to the point where I do feel a little bit like basically five years before I ever heard of Critical Role or Acquisitions Incorporated, I was begging my brother and sister to just sit down with me. We played some D&D and tried to record it, and it just didn't work out because we were all in like, I don't know, our very early 20s or teens or something. But basically... I was sure that this was going to be a huge thing, that within the next five years, people were going to be obsessed with watching people play D&D because up until this point, D&D has never had something where you could sit down and watch people play D&D, and that's the threshold. I've known for a while since college that once people sit down and watch people play D&D, there are very few people who don't feel engaged by this. I had uh, people who would be like, can we watch you play D&D? And I was very much in college like, no, that'd be weird, until I finally let two people come in. And then the first thing they said was, oh, we'd play this. And I'm like, stop the game for a second. What do you mean you'd play this? You don't <laughs> like D&D. And they say, no, we would like. We didn't realize it was just sitting around, eating pizza, having fun. And that was really when I started realizing, oh, this has mainstream appeal at this point in our history. There is no longer people. The stigma is coming from people who don't know what this looks like. Once people understand it does involve dressing up and speaking in old-timey English, <laughs> it all of a sudden becomes a hundred times more accessible and people are like oh this is just a board game i play this and that's when i really think i started formulating the business and also really started realizing that i could bring this to many many people and that it had a much more widespread appeal i, th- I think that was the point i was making but uh, yeah <laughs> so two things from that the first one is i think you're onto something with maybe for some writers who struggle with like coming up with something off the top maybe writing from a D&D game might be an interesting way to create uh, a narrative work. Um, my next question, and almost maybe last question, what's next for you coming up? Do you have things you want to plug? Do you want to shout out your Twitter handle? I mean, totally. It's funny that we ended by talking about, like, you know, taking D&D and preserving it somehow in some kind of medium. I remember the point I've been making earlier was I was very happy I pursued the career I did because there are a lot of people making these shows now, whereas I don't see as many people delivering the live in-person product. And so I'm happy kind of I specialized in live games in the New York City area. At the same time, I'm now done with grad school and I finally have time to dedicate to actually sitting down with people and producing podcast material, recorded material, where I can, now I'm happy to say I'm starting one of my first recorded projects with a group of people that uh, we don't have the details to plug it just yet. We're going to be recording it as a kind of a all-in-one weekend shot, and then we're going to be chopping it up nice, into half-hour nice. episodes. So, I mean, the recording of the games is ultimately the logistics of D&D are hard as they are without any recording. So they only get more difficult when you talk about recording right. games. So we're going to knock it out in one weekend and hopefully have a product to then bring to people. So if you follow my Twitter, uh, which <laughs> if you have it in front of you, I'm realizing I am thinking that my Twitter handle is Woods. But I'm working on that assumption because I know I've had two different Twitter handles and one of them got deleted. So I'm pretty sure you can find me on Instagram, on Twitter, or if you just Google Tim Woods, Tim with two M's Woods, you'll be able to find my Wired article at the very least. So you'll be able to reach me. This just in, Tim Woods' Twitter handle is at T-I-M-M Woods. We just searched that 
Our, uh... Awesome. Awesome. Glad to hear <laughs> it. That's fantastic. So yeah, you can find me on Twitter and it, if and when we'll be posting up the finished product, that's where it will be. Otherwise, obviously, if people are interested in uh, bringing me in for games, obviously, I generally just serve the tri-state area, but I'm not the first to be. And I know a professional DM who actually got flown out to California by a group of lawyers to run a game. So just saying I'm available uh, just for that if anybody wants to uh, bring me somewhere. Uh, but otherwise, <laughs> obviously, it's primarily if people are in the tri-state area to bring me in for games or uh to simply uh if you have questions you can pop in uh, i generally can't always answer questions about like dming you know how can i help but uh, i will always try to get to fan mail whatever i can uh, to you know help people with prepping whatever games they have going on obviously there's so many dms every day who are starting for the first time and i always want to help those people wherever i can and i run a lot of games where i, I kind of just run a session and then am kind of coaching someone into taking over for me at the end of the session they kind of continue the campaign in my absence so i run a lot of different styles and a lot of different events and uh if anybody's interested they know where to find me last question and arguably the most intense important question of all did you have fun today i had a great time today this is a blast I would have had fun no matter what because I got to play D&D today, but I have to say that <laughs> this was a blast to get to sit down with uh, people who are interested in the writing that goes on behind a D&D game. It's, it's obviously something very different, and I find it incredibly rewarding because as a writing medium, it's super exciting for people to kind of be interested in that angle, I think, it is rarer. And so it's, it's always a privilege and a pleasure. And we had fun, too. Super insightful, and uh, you are our first game master. So thank you for absolutely. Hopefully uh, not the last. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again, Tim. Uh, Really appreciate your time, and thank you for our listeners as well. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to the Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer Exp. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.